Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm good, David. I'm eating some vegetarian meatballs. <laughs> well, what are those made out of? Tofu? I don't want to know, David. That's just... <laughs> it's it's soylent, soylent, man. It's made oh, of people. No, don't tell me that. <laughs> I get paranoid about this. I'm trying to live more healthfully. No, come on. Uh, I, I don't want to know what they're made out of. I, I'm Look, honestly, a, a woman turned me on to these, and um, I, I just I, I want to be able to report to her honestly that I've tried them. And uh, right. I, I, I am. And they're a little bit chewy, David. They're just a little bit <laughs> chewier than. So don't tell me I'm eating soylent human beings, okay? Okay. All right. I won't. Sorry. Just uh, try not to think about why it's so chewy. Although I guess if it was people, it would taste like pork. That's what I've heard. I've heard that people taste like pig. Um, long pig. That's the, that's the, you know, the great cannibal uh, name is long pig. Um, yes. Oh, I think I've given myself away. Um, <laughs> well, well, people who know me know that I did actually eat at gunpoint uh, some cannibal flesh a long mm-hmm. time ago. And it was at gunpoint. And I, um, you know, that was how you got out of the clearing. Um, it, was, it, was, it was not good. It was uh, some people trying to make a point about uh, the timber industry in Papua New Guinea, which is a cruel, brutal, and uh, I actually supported those uh, piratical, uh, cannibal, evil people in, in a way. I, I really agreed with them. Um, but yes, in, in answer to your question, uh, human flesh does taste a little bit like pork, not like chicken, not like yeah. fish. It tastes <laughs> like pork, long pig. All right. Maybe the best intro we've ever had. Um, Now people know. (laughs) Chris, um, what would you like to talk about today besides cannibalism? Okay. Well, that is the great subject, isn't it? Um, Well, I think we can um, round up a little bit of what we've been talking about in terms of the sense of hauntedness in Western civilization, particularly. Uh, I, I would suggest it's actually across global civilization. But I want to throw out an idea um, because your plan and mine is to make, you know, really complicated subjects simple and and understandable to everyone. And I want to just ask about one word in particular, mind reader. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting word. We don't say mind seer, we don't say mind listener, even though, you know, in films and stuff, when, when someone has this, you know, capability, that's what they hear. And we talked about in our last episode, the voices uh, that we all hear in our heads, which I think we all do. And, and people who deny that are, are maybe more <laughs> schizophrenic than the schizophrenics. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we really don't talk about any kind of telepathic or psychic empathy uh, characteristics in terms of mind seeing, you know, we had Nostradamus, we have, you know, Swedenborg, you know, seeing a fire that, that happened in the distance. That's kind of precognition, uh, clairvoyance. We have some terms for that, but when someone can see into another person's mind, we say mind reader Mm. in English. And I think that's fascinating that we choose that word. It really directly suggests mind as text. And I wonder if that isn't a clue to some of the complexity and problems and the hauntedness, the ghostliness of of modern civilization, that that the mind is a kind of text. And I'm not sure if I really... I mean, that suggests that there's something to be... Uh, there's something written, which kind of suggests that that maybe we've inherited something from the magic of the written word, which is really maybe demanded a very high price. You know, mm-hmm. Arthur C. Clarke talks about magic as being, you know, sufficiently advanced technology. 
which just tires me deeply. I, I think we started with a great technology of the written word, which is pure magic. There is no mm-hmm. way around that. It's sigils, mm-hmm. isn't it? It is sigils. It's. Um, I'd also like to point out, you know, John 1, 1, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So right. that's, that's in our uh, here Western Christian canon uh, very explicitly. But it is sigil magic in a sense. Um, for people who aren't familiar who are listening, sigil magic is a practice by which you write down uh, in words your desire, and you use very affirmative language. You cross out all the vowels, you gather up the remaining consonants, and you create a symbol out of those consonants, usually very, very esoteric looking. You're allowed to get as creative as your imagination and your artistic abilities allow. And then you're instructed to concentrate very heavily on it. Sometimes uh, masturbation is used as a focusing technique, but it's not 100% necessary. And then after that, you're asked to forget what the sigil means, but leave it in a conspicuous place, taped up to your fridge or taped to your bathroom mirror or something like that. And the process is meant to, you're meant to, it depends on who you ask, right? So some people believe that you're messing with your subconscious mind by doing that. You're you're reprogramming yourself, which um, is a bit too materialistic and scientistic for me. I like the spookier version. I like the idea that you're actually sort of affecting the the magical sphere or the source as it were with this powerful magical act so again depends on who you ask but the relationship to words there is very clear but you know words themselves you're a great uh, fan and uh, purveyor of words and different words have magical feelings to them right there's, there are words that, uh, that just the words that that fit what they're supposed to to be saying so perfectly, and then there's others that means the opposite. So yeah, I I agree with you on that. Well, it shows that I think that the the weird magic of language um, is really in control of us to some extent. I mean, William Burroughs said that. You know, language is a virus. Uh, Werner Heisenberg said we are suspended in language. Um, Heinz Pegel said that, you know, two physicists. Um, and then Lewis Thomas, who is one of my great uh, prose writing models, uh, said that the beauty of language is that we, it allows us to not come to the point. Um, and I think that's an interesting magical idea mm, that, that, that. that, you know, not coming to the, well, what is the point of life? Well, I, I think we all know it's death, you know, mm-hmm, it, it, mm-hmm. that's the final point of it's birth and death. And that's really the plot line here. There's no, there's no big thing going on. There, there are some things that happen in the middle. We meet some people, we fall in love, we do this and we do that. We break some laws. We don't, you know, we eat some human flesh maybe um you know things happen they call it there's a reason they call it a funeral plot right right well that's you know this is very interesting Uh, with this uh rutledge uh text book that i'm working on i i talk about plot in terms of yeah there are points on a graph and there's a there there's the the funeral side of, of buying a cemetery plot you know, and there's also the conspiracy side. We're plotting, which is the the more more interesting idea. Anyone who's anyone wants to be conspiring with someone else. You know, conspiring, breathing together, conspiring. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's a beautiful idea. We're breathing together. It's like scuba diving in a wreck. You know, I, you've run out of air. Well, you can have some of mine. You know. Um, and that's also, you know, uh, this great criminal idea of conspiring. But those are the three elements of plot that I think are really interesting. Yeah, it is about the cemetery plot. I don't have a family plot. Do you? No, I don't. I mean, my, uh, <laughs> I'll tell a brief story. Um, when my father died, uh, we, and he died very young, and, um, 
it wasn't good. It just was not good. Um, but a guy from the Neptune Society came up to me at the memorial service and said to me, um, I have something to apologize for. And I thought, well, look, I, I'm actually a little, you know, high on cocaine and drunk here and my father just mm. died and I'm really mm -hmm. tragically sad. And what, who are you again? And he said, um, your father's ashes weren't actually spread out over uh, the bay at, in Honolulu as requested. This was part of a big scandal at the time. I don't know if people, some people will remember this. They got in, the Neptune Society got into a lot of trouble about this because they were just dumping ashes out of planes or doing, you know, in the backyard or whatever. Oh, Jesus. And uh, this guy who looked like Greg Kinnear, if you know that actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. L Lieutenant Dan. He, he said to me, well, we, we spread your father's ashes over San Diego Harbor. And, uh, well, I, I was a little bit um, in a difficult stage of my life and, and mind at the moment. And I, I, I just thought, well, I'm, I just decked him, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. And I thought, well, yeah. well, look, that's the answer back there. I mean, San Diego Harbor means nothing to my family. It means a little bit to me personally, but but not not to my father. I just thought, no, I'm going to deck you, you know? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you got to just do that. By the way, I said uh, Lieutenant Dan. That was Gary Sinise. Whoops. But I do know who Greg Kinnear is now. I, I, gotta, I love I gotta Gary Sinise, too. He's one of my favorite actors. Both of them are. They're great. They're great. Uh, they're, they're whoever they want to be. They're great actors. Uh, mm -hmm. But you know what I mean? It's just like... Um, there's a moment where you, you just think, oh, look, you know, um, well, I guess it's, it, it ties back into this magic idea of there is something really essential about uh, the human soul. And, and yeah. if people don't really believe in that, uh, that's kind of my dividing line. I, I look for that very quickly in people. I, I think you do too. Um, if people don't believe in the soul idea, um, I'm not really going to have many fun beers with them, you know, really. No, no, you know? no. Yeah, because they're always going to be fact checking on your phone and, you know, telling you all the things that you say that, you know, well, that's not true because I read in the Journal of American Medicine this, this, and this. And it's like, oh, God, boring. So boring. But, um, you know, when you talk about soul, I, I think that um, that's an important segue into one of the larger things that we're going to talk about here, because what we're focused on with this episode, I believe, is is acting as a bridge between our previous series, which was The Haunted Mirror, and our next series that we're going to do on different um, Aboriginal and Indigenous cultures sort of around the world. And the way that we're going to do that is by talking about the individual soul and its relationship to the collective and mm -hmm. how that's been a bit uh, corrupted over over our time. So would you like to kind of lay out for the listeners what were the beginning of our of our argument here, our opening argument, if you will? Okay. Well, I think that was very well said. Um if we look at uh, the triad of William, James, Freud, and Jung, all three of them were, were deeply involved in individual psychic experience, the formation of personality, the concept of self, the philosophy of mind, if you like. Um, James was a, a, a doctor who never practiced. Um, he went to the Amazon jungle at, at, you know, when the Civil War was just ending. Freud was talking about originally how to deal with an individual psychic personality within polite Viennese society. Uh, Jung was a definite clinical doctor, uh, the most medically sort of uh, grounded of them. And he moved into the most uh, anthropological level of the talking about the collective unconscious, uh, alchemical dreaming. Um, 
But all three of them noticed, and we're not saying here that that there aren't great people who were connecting those dots and putting forward other ideas. But these are three critical people in terms of establishing an idea that the individual psychic person is a part of culture, is a fundamental part of culture. There is no such thing as a solitary ant. There's no such thing as a solitary person. And that background foreground Figure and ground in in visual art terms. I, I I know people understand that everyone's taken a good photograph at some point, and and you know that you need a figure and and ground, mm-hmm. and we lost track of that somehow. That pursuit of this intermixing of an exploration of the individual psychic experience the individual mm-hmm. personality, but embedded within culture, because we all carry culture, whether we like to think about it or not. We do. Uh, one of the greatest experience, well, the greatest experience in my life is being far enough away from my culture under emergency situations to really see it, you know, to mm-hmm. really get a, a look at it, an aerial view. It's very hard to get that. And somehow we lost that. And um, the other day, you know, when I were talking, and, and I think you had some ideas about where, where that plot got lost. Yes. Yes, I definitely do. Before I get there, I have this great quote from William James that I wanted to share from a pluralistic universe that I think speaks to what you're saying. Um, and for anybody who hasn't read James, I highly recommend it because he's extremely readable. He's got the, the, his brother was Henry James, his younger brother, who was sort of always upstaging him. And he, uh, he has his brother's talent, right? His sister, as a matter of fact, is also a famous diarist. So um, the whole family just had talent coming out of their ears. So James in particular was very concerned with what he called an ontological wonder sickness, which I can't remember which book that comes from. I've been trying to find it. But you know, he was very concerned with uh, two types of people, people who seem to have a kind of sunny disposition and people who seem to have a more dour, uh, misanthropic, melancholy disposition. And he related it to the human soul in, I, in a way that I think this quote really um, exemplifies. So the quote goes as such, Perhaps the most interesting opposition is that is that which results from the clash between what I lately called the sympathetic and the cynical temper. Materialistic and spiritualistic philosophies are the rival types that result, the former defining the world so as to leave man's soul upon it as a soil of of outside passenger or alien, while the latter insists that the intimate and human must surround and underlie the brutal. This latter is the spiritual way of thinking. So I think that's a good start for what we're talking about here. What do you think about that? Wow. Outside passenger. You know, I I think that's the great theme of of all the literature that matters to me um, Mm -hmm. and all the art and and, in all of my personal life experience. I, I think James was, was on to some really great ideas, and he, he really did have the, the, the beautiful clarity of communication, which maybe is something that has been lacking in, in our nearer lifetime since. You know, we, we just don't yeah. have people who are that bright, that insightful, uh, able to communicate that clearly. Um, mm-hmm. But... I, I think that's a beautiful, you know, and he he really, he gave us the idea, a couple of other really important ideas. Uh, the, the stream of consciousness is mm-hmm. a phrase that is attributed to him. Uh, we understand what that means. He, he And he didn't, you know, take any credit for that, but he used that phrase before anyone else did that we know of. And soul sickness as... Mm-hmm 
something to do fundamentally with the modern condition. Um, yeah. And I, I think that is where we, we, we started to understand ourselves. Um, I'm hoping that in future episodes, we can really talk about the, the effect of mass communications uh, on, on world culture, because I don't think that there's anything that is really, really um, encapsulating of, of that, that immense change. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not on, on the rural and in the private and the more remote areas of the world, which have now been reached by mass communications. That's the idea of mass communications, isn't it? It just mm-hmm. reaches out everywhere. Um, but I, I think that w- what we started with here is, is a, a possible program of humanistic integration of self society and civilization and there is a difference between society and civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, not every society rises to the, the grand level of civilization, um, mm-hmm. which we, you know, arrogantly attribute to ourselves um, without any idea about what, what that means. Um, and then something really happened. Um, I don't know. I, I remember you talking about the... Uh, a, a cigarette thing. I mean, yes, um, yes, yes. So this is what I think of as the ultimate corruption of the idea of the individual um, as an island. The person is an island, right? And there will be a, a move that I try to make later in the episode that is also very important. But this is the this is the first move. So in the 1920s so you know we're post world war 1 post influenza post influenza correct and women are taking on a more equal role in society they are campaigning for the right to vote um there is even some some murmurs of sort of equal sexual rights for women as there are for Party. men yeah, which I think today every uh, man looks back at that and thinks, "What was the problem to begin to begin with here?" But um, so we have a guy named Edward Bernays, and Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. So we mentioned Freud a little bit earlier as a person who, at a certain point at least, was very interested in the interior worlds of human beings and how they. Uh, their deepest kind of desires and how that makes them interact with the outside world. Well, Bernays moved to America. And at this point, companies were looking for ways to promote consumer goods to the American people because they had this problem. They were making things like vacuum cleaners that were built to last. And they were finding that people bought really high quality goods and then didn't have to buy anything anymore. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. Yeah, so, we call that a, a scam. Right. So they they're looking for ways to get people to buy things and so in 1929, uh, Bernays was tasked by the Lucky Strike cigarette company with trying to figure out how to get women to smoke. So at the time Smoking was associated, if you were a woman, with prostitution, uh, with being a loose woman, which was still, you know, despite the the slight rumblings of what would eventually be sexual liberation, it was nowhere near there quite yet. So they had to figure out a way to double their consumer base. And Bernays, using the techniques that his uncle uh, sort of invented about you know the subconscious these subconscious sexual desires he figured out a way to sell cigarettes to women so in 1929 there's a big uh women's march in new york city and um he puts together this campaign equating smoking with equal rights for women and let's just remind everyone here we're talking about the beginning of the Great Depression, FDR is president. This is like really going crazy. 
We think things are crazy now. Uh, 1929? Uh, okay, carry on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was rough. So what, what he did was he started a, an advertising campaign at this march that, like I said, basically equated uh, women's inability to smoke with their inequality in the home and in politics. And he hired several models of the time to sort of uh, parade around smoking lucky strikes and making it look glamorous and surprising no one in 2021 it worked mm. um the cigarette sales uh, for women skyrocketed just as many women began smoking as men and he realized that he had tapped into something and it would get much darker later where he would begin to you know equate different household appliances with sexual gratification um <laughs> stuff that now seems almost passe um you know you'll you'll see a you know a, a sexy woman drinking a coca-cola or a bud bud light or something and we don't even think anything of it right but this was cutting edge at the time this guy was really inventing uh a brand new field of mind manipulation and so the connection that I think is so important to make with this is that what happened with Bernays and this Lucky Strike campaign was the beginning of the the individual over the collective at to the to the physical health detriment of the individual. I don't think you can find a more stark and cogent metaphor for what we're trying to say. I mean, this cigarette, we all know cigarettes are bad. You and I have both smoked uh, before and <laughs> once or twice, right? Yeah. Um, and we, we know, we know what it does to people's health. We know how many uh, women surely died of lung cancer as a result of this very ad campaign. But it was this privileging of, um, of independence, Right. And equality, and you know, I'm not trying to ruffle any feathers here by suggesting that equality is a bad thing, but the the individual aspect of it, I think, is what's so important. I am my own person. I am powerful, and I will prove that by giving myself cancer. Um, you just you can't you can't get any clearer than that. I think. No, and uh, you know what I think is so interesting about this, and this is something that. Um, for people who uh, know Sinclair Lewis, uh, who wrote some great novels, um, and is kind of um, sort of forgotten now, um, but he was actually uh, uh, Bennett Cerf, uh, the founder of, of uh, uh, Random House. Uh, he was one of his favorite author authors. He, he was really just seen as a great guy. Um, he was well out in front of a lot of the strange fads and ideas in the 1920s of America, anyway, that, that now seem all too true. You know, cult figures, weird diet plans, you know. I, I recommend that people review uh, Sinclair Lewis again because I think he was, um, wasn't a great writer, in, in, in a beautiful sentence way, but he was a good thinker and he was a very good social analyst um, and right on top of a lot of interesting things. But I think what David just said is that, you know, the, the idea that, that um, a political ideology of liberation, the liberation of women, I mean, honestly, who doesn't really want that? I mean, I certainly, I, I celebrate that. I think that's all good. That's just mm -hmm. that's more um, that's more fun for me. Um, yeah, I, I want to see strong, you know, interesting, creative women. Um, I don't necessarily want to see people over promoted uh, when they don't really know what they're doing. But that's another part of the problem. But I think that the idea of ideology is in seizing upon a great great insight into advertising. And I, I do get the right to speak to this because I'm a, a world-class advertising creative. Um, the whole idea of advertising in a modern sense hinges on 
the the over celebration of the individual. It's the Coca Cola me generation. It's all about build your own burger. It's all about you. It's about you. You're different. You're different. You know, and that was the big idea. And I think what David, you know, is pointing out with the Lucky Strikes idea is that this idea really started a long, long time ago, pre-World War II. And it built into a frenzy when I was uh, born and growing up in, in, in the 1960s. You know, uh, it just absolutely became a frenetic pursuit of individuality. And what ended up happening? Well, you know, you walk across the campus, and I'm talking a little bit, you know, obviously pre-COVID, but you walk across a 30,000 uh, student campus, major, you know, university. Do you see all that many individuals? No. You see some people who are taller than other people. You see some people who are fatter than other people. You see some people who are making a gender statement. But really, out of all of the thousands of people, and I have really great documentary footage of this, it's not that different. And so we've sold this idea of individuality. Um, women can be more powerful because they smoke cigarettes and get cancer. You know, oh, well, that's a great idea. Um, right. <laughs> you know, really, I mean... But this is the kind of idea that gets sold all the time. And I think we're all sold on this idea of like, you've got, you're an individual, you know, you're important. You, your call is meaningful to us. Please stay on the line. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh God. If I hear that, that makes me want to smash my phone. Um, well, and you see this with how people react to news stories whenever there is a panic about a certain disaster or disease or war or what have you. You you we always go down to the the personal level, the personal interest story. Yes, the the the, the man on the street. Yeah. Who, um, you know, this person was mauled by a tiger. You know, should zoos exist? <laughs> question mark. Uh, you know, this, this person and, you know, and sometimes it's really helpful, you know, sometimes it's good to, to have a, a day in the life of, you know, a Palestinian child, right. In one of those occupied camps that they have to live in. Um, sometimes it's, it's good to be able to see the humanity, like the human face of these big conflicts, but it's also a bit of a trap if you let yourself get into it because you start to believe things that don't really make any sense. I remember when I was a kid, my dad would always warn me about putting my fingers in the change return slots for payphones because he was he had heard that uh, people were putting HIV positive needles in them, right? <laughs> yeah. I get and, it. And, I get it. And I, you know, and I remember my grandmother being very concerned about, you know, uh, us going to use public restrooms by ourselves because she was very afraid that we would, you know, be molested while we were using the restroom, right? And so do these things happen? Of course. But is that a reasonable way to engage with reality? I would argue that it isn't. And it does something more insidious than that, though. It places you at the center of your life's narrative, of your life story. Oh, tell me more. Saying? No, like, tell me more there. That, that's an interesting <laughs> idea there. You're on to right. something. So, so you are the person who is going to be attacked by a serial killer if you leave your window open at night. You are the person who is you know, going to die a horrible death if you get on this airplane that's flying to Beijing, right? Um you're the person who is going to be ripped apart by a gorilla if you happen to lean too far over the cage. There's a direct connection between these small and statistically insignificant fears that we have and a sense that it's going to be us that it happens to. It used to happen to me all the time when I would get on an airplane. And we know flying in an airplane is safer than driving in a car. 
There's no question about that. But when you're experiencing real turbulence, like when you're going over the, uh, what's the worst turbulence I ever felt? Actually, I think it was on a flight to Beijing, funny enough. Maybe that's why that came to my mind. But um, when the plane starts bucking up and down, you think to yourself, yeah, this is going to happen to me. I'm going to be the I'm going to be the statistic, the 0.0001% of people if that who dies in a plane crash. And it's a it's a centering activity, it's a fear-based individual centering activity that completely misses the forest for the trees. Look, I'm with you. You know, I I'm reporting live from Oklahoma. We have found the dead body of J. David Osborne, who had his head ripped off by some mythic creature, you know? <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. You're going to be that hapless character at the beginning of an X-Files episode, right? Yeah. That's me. I'm the one who's on screen right now. Yeah. And I'm sorry. A, a happy, you're not. smiling face, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, but you're Too not. Too bad you're about very, your head. You're, you're very likely unfortunately, to pass away from heart disease, cancer, or diabetes, especially if you live in America, right? Especially if you live in America. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that that's, I think that's another one of the dark, the dark sides of the whole thing. Well, let's look at another side. Um, so well, what, I think that what you said, and you, you did it as gracefully as you possibly could, because uh, you have a pregnant wife, who's beautiful. Um, and, um, you know, we all know about housekeeping, you know, it, you got to keep the house, right? Um, yes. But on what you did say, though, I think, is that there was a moment in time, and it, it's really continued in time, uh, where mass marketing which is mass psychology, which is mass communications. And I think that's one of our underlying themes is that magic in the modern diseased way has become uh, mass communications, mass marketing. Uh, you did say, I think, that the idea that getting women to smoke cigarettes as a way of empowerment uh, was a plan. And I yes. think that's part of a plan that, that we've all been part of. I mean, do you realize how many products targeting women have emerged in the Western civilization markets? And I also know about Japan and, and uh, the major cities of China. So I'm not so sure about South America, but let's say it, it's, it's kind of a, everything, dominoes, Following like mm -hmm. dominoes, you know. Mm -hmm. um, what if what if this whole liberation idea was unfortunately driven by commercial interests of evil magnitude to just simply increase the surface area of capitalism? You know. Oh, look, I could not agree with that more. I mean, I don't. Again, on this show, we don't like to to ruffle too many feathers, but I'm one of the biggest advocates that you could get for immigration from Mexico to the United States. I've been in marches to support uh, immigration, both legal and illegal. Um, I don't even really like those words. I think it really, it comes from an affinity that I have for that particular culture. And, you know, just the way that I grew up, I think that people should have a right to, um, to have an opportunity, you know, to make some money and send that back home to their families. But this is a big but. In terms of what you said, how did you say it again? It was so beautiful. Expanding uh, the market of capitalism. Was that what the you surface said? area of capitalism? The, yeah. Perfect. Yes. The surface area of capitalism. There's a lot of huge corporations that would love that unchecked cheap labor, right? so that American citizens can not be paid uh, what they used to be paid, right? Because there's this huge labor market that's sort of flooding in. It's one of those kind of impossible problems, right? Where I'm, my mind is pulled both ways, you know, between 
a, a hope for people to be able to to build their own lives and 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 the facts on the ground that it's it's not very good for the people who who live here to begin with right it's that it's that double-edged sword right you get women's equality but you also get what hundreds of thousands millions of women dying of cancer because of that decision so nothing's ever nothing really fits in a box quite perfectly and i i think it's important to acknowledge that well, you know, I, I think at some point we're going to have to talk about the um, the Latinx uh, mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you you have lived in El Paso. Uh, your your wife is is Hispanic Latina. Um, you, you live in Oklahoma, and I live in Las Vegas, where you know I, I can't even walk out the door, and everyone's speaking Spanish. Um, right. So we're going to have to talk about that at some point. Um, because I think this is a little bit a part of, uh, and it's a deeply American issue. Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson, for all his sins and failures, he did a long time ago in the 18th century advise that that people learn Spanish, and mm -hmm. and I don't know if people understand that um, the main commercial language. Of, of say 1850s St. Louis uh, was was Spanish. It wasn't English. It wasn't French. It was Spanish. Um, so we're going to have to talk about that at some point. Um, but here's the thing. So where can we get back to as trying to integrate uh, ourselves with a, a larger culture. And unfortunately, the culture is just, you know, it's bloomed out bigger and bigger. It's now global. It's not just American. It's not UK. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't think my UK friends are on top of this anymore. I don't think my Caribbean friends or my African friends are on top of this. And Africa, mm -hmm. I mean, Jesus, Lord, you know, the dark mm -hmm. continent, a big continent. Um, so where do we go? Um, I, I have one thought, but I want to hear yours first. My thought is religion and spirituality. Um, I think that a I lot love of, you so much. <laughs> I think I think that um, in this country, in particular, and a lot of people who are in my age demographic um, came up in church systems that were very oppressive, that were anti-free thought, that were anti-sex, anti-gay, uh, sometimes in the extreme, even anti-woman and, and person of color, right? So there's a lot of mental and emotional baggage that is well-earned by a lot of people. They clam up when you mention religion uh, or the dreaded New Age wine mom version of that, which is spirituality, right? Um <laughs> So, so, but what I'm specifically talking about is again, you lose something when you throw religion away that I think is very important. So, we've been talking about the individual and the collective, right? And how the, the individual, in our sort of way of thinking, leads to a kind of death, right? So the cancer of the Lucky Strike cigarettes can also be thought of as a as a sort of walking dead materialist consumer uh, who sort of hates his life, um, that kind of thing, right? I think that what makes most of the cultures of the world so beautiful is their spiritual and religious practice. And that is the exact thing that often gets stifled when you talk about that particular culture. Well, you know, I think that's really true, and I, I, I'm, I'm very sorry that people get so stymied by the words uh, spiritual and, and religion. Um, I, I, you know, I, I just don't understand that uh, at, at a deep heart level in, in my own being. Um, I have an estranged uh, son who I would really think that you would be he's about your age actually um and I, I i'm really proud of him and he's he's uh he can fly a jet liner 
like a serious 747 plane. But he's, he's cool. decided to uh, just kind of be quiet and, and live on a little, uh, you know, island that no one in America uh, even cares to know about. They have no idea. Um, but what he would say is our heart is all that we are and there is no mind without the heart and i think that comes out of a great tradition of of cannibals you know i mean he is from the cannibal people you know like they're they're like major cannibals solomon island cannibals you know mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and he can fly a jet plane and he chooses not to and but yet uh of all the people i have ever known He's the one person I would like to introduce you to um, Mm -hmm. because I think you'd understand him. And, yeah, it's a little bit lonely out on those weird islands. Um, But what is civilization really if not just another island? I mean, look Mm -hmm. at the great civilization. Look at Egypt. Look at the Mayan civilization, the Aztecs. They're all islands, really, you know? Island civilizations. That's the concept. Island equals civilization. And we no longer have the the luxury of islands because we live in a global world where everything connects to everything. So we're going to have to change our our viewpoint. And I think that what what will happen is we're either going to really redirect a paradigm of humanist thinking along the lines of William James, Freud, Jung, or we're going to go Silicon Valley, Japan, robotics, you know? Right. Right. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. that those, those people are not giving us the answers to our soul problem, you know? And I, I'm not saying soul as an S-O-L-E. I'm saying, you know, yeah. S-O-U-L. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Could not agree more. And it's because if they can't find a way to monetize it and sell it back to you, then they're not interested in it. You see so much stuff in the tech world about something called a uh, flow state, right? Uh, It was invented (laughs) by a guy named, I think his name is Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi. His name is incredibly hard to pronounce. I probably messed that up. It's just a bunch of consonants. He's a Polish dude. It's a problem with us, us Polish, of, of Polish descent. Um, but he invented a term called flow state where you are very concentrated on whatever you're doing, whether that's creating art or writing or, uh, you know, an extreme athlete. It's, it, it's a dilation of time where it slows down or speeds up almost seemingly at your own will. But of course, when people read about these flow states, it's not in the context of having a semi or full on religious experience that's, you know, meant to nourish their soul. It's typically thought of as look at how much stuff you can get done for your boss in half the time. <laughs> right. And that and that's the problem right there. It's the it's the costumization of all these different cultures, right? You had a really good point that you were telling me about earlier that I want people to hear about this idea of, of cultures becoming costumes. Yeah. Well, you know, this is something that really hit me. Um, I'm not teaching currently, but I have been, you know, relatively recently at, at the number one, most diverse, uh, campus in, in America, you know, so it's called, so it's called, right. Um, diversity and inclusion, you know? And what was interesting to me is that um, my two finest students have been Muslims. Um, A little tiny, like four foot eight Pakistani woman who is now... uh, a really great lawyer. She she roared through law school, um, and so she should. She was 
she's just so smart. Um, but my my Islamic students said to me, you know, we're all accepted here as long as we're in costume, you know? Um, and they have to wait out on like a major bus line, you know, gang bang or thing, you know, like people like on drugs and, you know, all sorts of crazy schizophrenic people. What are you doing wearing this, this crazy sort of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, yet these uh, women have the courage to do that. I, 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 I'm in honor of them. I, I just, I, I don't know how they do it. And I, I'm very grateful to have uh, taught them at all and try mm-hmm. to teach them something. But what they said to me was, you know, it's all fine here in America until people really engage with the religious aspects of Islam. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, you know, I I don't know if I'm really a religious person. I I think I'm a spiritual person, but I I do know that... um, I'm not wearing a a costume. Right. You know, it's not about, uh, it's not like a food thing, you know, like Mm -hmm. an ethnographic, you know, food thing. Like, oh, yeah, this is like North African food or this is Pakistan, you know. No, Mm -hmm. these people actually believe in a religious principle and they have a body of work that they they can believe in that I think is beautiful. Um, it's not my belief. It's, I, I'm not part of that culture. But I'm not saying that they're dressing in a costume to be accepted. And, right. and this is what worries me about, you know, oh, yeah, we're, we're accepting these people. And one of my gals, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that one of my gals, uh, got roped into a brochure for the university uh, because she was dressed in traditional uh, attire. The but, hijab and all that, yeah. Yeah, and and people go, well, well, that that's great. It's like it's kind of fun. It's like Halloween that we can all deal with, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's not for her, you know. Right. Right. She takes this. She takes this stuff seriously. Mm -hmm. And the only way that we can also take that seriously is by understanding on some level what a religious and spiritual practice actually feels like. It's not something that we can understand on the surface because at a certain point it does just become fashion. There were tons of controversies on campuses about people having Mexican parties where they would wear sombreros and I agree. I think that is in very poor taste. But I think that a lot of the people who would decry those kind of abhorrent uh, costume parties are sort of doing the same thing without realizing that they're doing it, right? By refusing to engage with the individuality of the people who wear certain clothes or come from certain countries, you're tokenizing and costumizing people. Uh, you're, You're essentially you're people have become so obsessed with the individual that is themselves right and and this is the the final move that i kind of want to make that they want to turn the collective into an individual right they want to turn it into themselves they want to see a reflection of themselves which brings us back to this double thing right it's this perverted sense of you know of manufacturing your own double in everybody that you see to the point that it becomes intolerable to not see some element of yourself in people. And I'm sorry, but people are very different, and that's what makes them awesome. That's what makes them cool. It makes them cool to be something that you can't quantify or pay for or learn from a textbook, right? It's stuff that comes from conversation and hanging out with real people and disagreeing and all these kind of things that are required if you live in a collective of people, but the individualist nature of our culture right now forces us into these bubbles where everybody, you ever, you know, see a, like a, 
I can't help but think that there's a real problem going on with people not engaging with the complexity and, you know, that great quote that you said at the very beginning of the episode, right? About words are great tools to, what was it, to obfuscate, to make, to, to words are, are great for, for never getting to the point. That's what it was. Oh, Lewis Thomas. Never... Lewis Thomas. Yeah. Is, yeah. Lewis yeah. Thomas said that the, the beautiful thing about language is that it allows us to never get to the point. Exactly. Right. That's the kind of stuff, the kind of substance that I'm championing here. And I think that we're championing on our podcast. And I think that that is the bridge that's going to lead us to our next series of episodes where we take deep dives into different cultures from around the world and attempt to uh, not westernize them or kind of, you know, understand them on our own terms, but within our best abilities understand them on on their terms because i think that the best way to escape from the trap of of individualism is not to run to some kind of communist collectivism either right that's its evil twin uh, right but it's something right. it's it's a third way and i think that and i think that that way has a lot to do with magic religion and spirituality and so i think that that's where we'll be going next what do you think about that well i i think that you know there there is no um, well, the, the great people who, who really know about escape and evasion uh, say to stand still, you know? They, they, they don't say you run. Um, and, and we have a problem with wanting to escape a, a modern American Western civilization program. And I think that you and I, at least... And, and all our listeners, really, uh, have every right to want to escape that. Um, it's not a good program, and, and we want to at least rewrite it. We want to go back around and get into the cockpit and, and fly the plane ourselves. Um, and that may mean some, some, some difficult things. Um, but I think the next stage of, of this podcast is going to be really interesting because we're looking at, at people around the world who are not uh, part of this Western civilization idea and some people who are pointedly resisting it. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. I mean, to be able to even say that is something remarkable. And I think we're speaking about, you know, uh, some people in, in the Amazon River Basin. We're certainly talking about some people I know uh, in New Guinea uh, and Borneo. Uh, bless their hearts, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine, imagine resisting. Imagine resisting the power of, of technological civilization today. You've got to have some real heart. You've got to have some magic to do that. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those people just can't just go, oh, well, we're going to disappear into the bush. You know, it's a little right. bit more than that. When we're burning down their bush, we're dynamiting their bush, we're attacking their bush, and we brought technological war since the 1940s onto them. Now, they're hardcore people. So I think there's some exciting things to talk about with the magical resistance to the program of Western civilization. And I think that in a positive way, I'm sure David agrees with this, there's a way to reconfigure the best things about Western civilization. And I, you know, and all of all, all global civilization, let's include just throwing China, India, Japan, everyone, you know, it's all one thing now. Um, but we can actually make something good of what we're on about now and mm -hmm. what we've, the crisis that we've created and we've all created it. We're all accomplices 
You know, no one's free here. No one is free. This is the problem with the idea of the woke, you know, woke cultural, cultural idea. Now, now everyone's guilty. Everyone is guilty. We've all taken bread from the basket, you know, and we're, we've got to uh, accept that. And we can change it, you know, we can change it. Um, but no one, no one of any skin color or gender or whatever is free of modernity, you know?